How you doing? Yeah, good, mate. Good after last night. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, looks like a, a rosy future, doesn't it? Yeah, it's good. It was like the first time I've been in to a home game in about six years. So, is it? Uh, really good feeling. Yeah. Was that out of um, choice, not wanting to go with your lambs or just other circumstances? Uh, a bit of both, really. Like, I don't live in Hull now, so right. I'm not going to say it's all the LMs. It's a bit laziness on my part. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, definitely to do with that, you know what I mean? And fair play to everyone that kept going. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've always got these moments when you thought things might be improving. You know, when we had Bowen and Grzycki, and uh, we had, you know, we had a decent setup, even under the alarms at that point. You thought it might come back, but of course we sold them, and um, then you have two or three years of just meandering around, don't you? And we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Were you there last night? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still a member, so uh, I've been going. Uh, well, I've been going pretty much since 1972, so I only had the odd sort of break uh, from time to time. Uh, but yeah, it was good atmosphere last night. It was good feel-good factor was back. So it was enjoyable, yeah. Yeah, you can crack into it then, Dave. Absolutely, yeah. Taking it uh, right back, really. Like, what are your first memories of Boothry Park? Well, uh, I started going in 1972. Um, we'd lived in Wales for three years with my dad's job. He worked for BP and we came back to Hull. We got season tickets in the uh, what was called the best stand at the time at Boothbury Park. So I was only six. That was um, the Terry Neal era of Hull City. So Wagstaff was up front with uh, Stuart Pearson. And uh, you had people like Ken, Ken Knighton were playing, Roger DeVries, Frankie Banks. So... Decent crowds. Um, but as a young kid, uh, <clears throat> it maybe didn't mean an awful lot to me because you know football wasn't there wasn't anything like the coverage that we get now. So you you only saw football once a week, perhaps on the television, and then you'd see it in the flesh at Boothbury Park. Um, but it was exciting. Yeah, it's exciting getting ready to go to the game and and uh, you know especially when the opposition brought a big following of supporters and it really cranked up the atmosphere. Yeah, happy times. And what was it like then, like? Obviously, the old North stand and stuff had gone by the time I was going. Mm. But how different was Boothry Park back then? You still did get stuff on your head when the ball hit the roof sometimes. <laughs> not, not as much in those days, because it was in a better, it was in better condition. Um, yeah, I never actually sat in the North stand, but uh, obviously it was there when I was going. And uh, But we, we did occasionally, myself and my dad would go in the South stand and sit in the seats above, so... Um, and I've also I've been in, in the in the Kempton Road stand as well. Um, yeah, it was quite it was quite different, I suppose, because you had all four stands in use. Um, and I think the t- the team the feeling was that at that time City could could push on and actually go into the top flight for the first time because they had a you know an innovative manager in Terry Neal who brought one or two people in and. Um, I think uh, the feeling around, you know, it was quite, you know, it was quite exciting. It sort of then meandered when Terry Neal left. It sort of ended up going into a period of time when the club just sort of stuck around the mid-table in, in the old Division Two for years until eventually it, it slipped out and the gates just gradually started to drop because they were never really challenging for promotion. So if we take it back a little bit, like what was your first match? Do you remember much about it? Do you know, to be honest, I can't, no. Um, I remember going to my very first football game was actually Swansea against Bournemouth. 
in the old Division 3. Right. Because we lived there. And I remember there was a lot of Bournemouth fans because they were going for promotion and Swansea were rubbish. Um, and nothing really... I can't actually remember my first whole City game, but it would be a 72-73 season. Uh, I remember that season making, or the season after, making an absolute nightmare decision myself. I persuaded my dad not to go to a game when we then put six goals past Preston. He never forgave me. <laughs> it came up on the final score on the Saturday afternoon, Hull City 6. I think it was Preston 2, something like that. He said, you say you didn't want to go. You persuaded me not to go and we missed out. And I oh, God, <laughs> absolute thrashing and I wasn't there. Well, it's kind of like... Your match match day routine when you first started as well, or the routine yeah, we, you most remember. It was just me. It was me and my dad, obviously, and we would park up in the surrounding streets. I always took a little bottle of pop with me, biscuit for half time. My dad was on the cigars, and the people around you didn't didn't tend to change much then because most people seemed to be season ticket holders, and so the old guy who sat next to me he was always there. And other people, you got to know the people around you. So you built up that kind of uh, relationship with people. The um, the famous Johnny Hayton, who a lot of our fans will know, because Johnny just travels everywhere watching City and still does. He actually sat behind me for a few seasons at Booth Ferry Park. So that was quite interesting because Johnny always, always had an opinion on everything. <laughs> um, and he's got the most distinctive voice in football. And if Johnny watches it, I'm sure he'll agree. And um, so it was... Yeah, you had your sort of routines, but we also used to go to a few away games as well. So in those days, you stick the scarf out the window and you'd love to see if you could see any fellow supporters going down the M62, whether it be to Barnsley or Oldham or wherever it might be. Um, and they were always exciting because fans were always sort of shoved in amongst each other in those days. When they came to Boothbury Park, you'd have away fans sat in amongst the home supporters and it used to get quite quite lively some occasions in those days, especially when lads of Sunderland or Manchester United came. It got very lively. <laughs> yeah, it was um, has Kempton always been kind of the was it always the main stand for the singing, or was it a bit more varied back in the day? No, initially it was South Stand. Um, that's where the noise came from. Bunkers, of course, was where it was known, and that's where the noise came from. And every now and again. At a home game on a Saturday, especially when it was the mid-70s, there'd be a sudden huge noise would go off. And that's usually because the away fans had infiltrated the home end. And of course, there'd be a suddenly yeah, there'd be a few fisticuffs and the police would be piling in. That seemed to be quite a regular occurrence. I remember a Luton fan blatantly walking in there with a big flag round and nobody stopped him and all you know kicked off behind the goal. And that was where the noise generated from. So if away fans wanted to come and cause a bit of aggro. That's where they try and sneak into. And all of a sudden, you'd hear the chant of Millwall going up in our end. And all fans running left, right and centre to get away from them and uh, different times. Wow, yeah. Wouldn't happen now. <laughs> well, they tried the best, didn't they? That FA Cup game we had against them at the KC. Yeah, they brought it back, didn't they? They went on for that one, yeah, and came back in large numbers and got everybody out. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a game not to remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just in terms of your own career then, Dave, like obviously you ended up commentating on City. What was the build-up to that and when did you actually start doing that? Well, first of all, um, I started working for the club in a sponsor's lounge. And that was how I met Martin. Because um, I would be there with two or three other guys and our job was really a sort of soft security approach, if you like, a meet and greet approach to the sponsors coming in. And Martin would come up and do his uh, meet and greets and he'd do his uh, little bit of uh, entertaining. 
And he always called myself and my good friend Steve Bryan, and whoever he was doing the quiz after the game, and I've never forgiven him for this, he always called us Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And he would look across and he'd say, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, you got an answer for this one? <laughs> Everyone sat there, no, no answer to his question. But he was a great guy. And uh, so he would come up and liven things up, obviously, in there. So I worked in there for a few years. Uh, Simon Corkill was, was running it at the time. He was the club's commercial manager. But these were the days of, of Terry Dolan and then subsequently Mark Haley. So you can imagine it was on a bit of a downward spiral. Um, and I said on Twitter yesterday, one of the guys who used to come every week and sit in the sponsors area and come in the lounge was Andy Mason's mum and dad and his brother Lee. And Lee Mason became a, a very well-known professional referee, of course. But he could give referees some stick in those days, I can tell you as well. <laughs> so, um, but Lee, uh, Lee was actually he was a really nice guy. And he came and, of course, he was hugely frustrated because his brother Andy hardly ever played under Terry Dolan. And uh, they didn't like Jeff Lee at, at all. They didn't think he was doing anything for his, uh, his brother and, and, and son and so on. Um, and that's where, also where the scouts would come. So myself and Steve would be working in there and you'd get people like uh, Glyn Snodden, who played, I think he played for, um, his brother played for Everton, and he played for a number of clubs. He would come very often coming scouting City players and opposition managers would come up. I remember Lenny Lawrence coming up one game, he was Bradford City manager, I think, at the time. And he came up about half past two and he came up to watch the horse racing. And he sat there and he watched the horse race until about 10 to 3. And I thought, hang on a minute, your players are in the dressing room preparing for, it was an end of season game, I think. Um, but there he was watching the horse. But that was just a different era. Managers would come and do that. They would come up before the game and say hello. They'd hang around and watch the TV for a while. Um, it's strange, you know, uh, John Duncan, the Chesterfield manager, he came quite a bit. And uh, Kevin Ratcliffe, Ratcliffe, the Everton player, he was a regular visitor to the, uh, to the ground. And a lot of scouts came to watch Dean Windus, of course, on many occasions. And they would stand and have a chat and say, why is no, why is nobody signed Windus then? Why is he still here? And uh, it's his temperament, isn't it? It's his temperament. And of course, you know, where we were all City fans, we were saying, well, you know, he's a good player. Yeah, but why? And then they'd come back and watch him again. And obviously, eventually, somebody took a punt on him. But it was always interesting times to see who would turn up on a Saturday. And they all came into that particular area except the time when the supporters came and put fish out, Dolan st out stickers all over the place. That was the day when Warren Joyce scored and celebrated at the empty Kempton Road stand. Because uh, yeah. they'd be down in the dressing room and put stickers all over the place, which hadn't gone down well. <laughs> but it was quite amusing at the time. But uh, the commentating, uh, the city actually advertised the job on the website and somebody mess messaged me and said, oh, why don't you have a go at that? It's your kind of thing. Um, so I went along and spoke to Forest Edge Films who were doing the, the filming. They've had Danny Pratt doing it before. I don't know if you've ever met Danny. He's yeah, I remember Danny, yeah. Yeah, I think he's at Leicester. He was at Leicester. Uh, he did the commentary. Um, so I took over from him and we were up in the gantry above the best stand. Uh, but to get to it, you had to walk up these rickety scares, stairs right at the back of the stand outside. So if it was raining or snowing, it was really kind of slippery. And then you'd have to carry the equipment up and down, which in those days was VHS, it wasn't DVD. So you had a six, a bank of six video recorders going up there to record it because the tapes, tapes went to the mascot, the managers, the referee, one got sent to the FA, things like that. So, um, and yeah, I started doing that under Jan Mulby's uh, reign, this manager I was commentating and then did that for a number of years until we got into the Premier League. So was that the season, the season we moved to KC at Christmas? 
Yeah, I did about four, three or four months at Boothbury Park. Um, okay. And then we moved to the KCOM. Um, yeah, I mean, the, one of the best things we did that season was the end of era stuff because we had the big last game against Darlington, which, of course, we lost, unfortunately. But a lot of the old players came along to that day. And so we could we got there really early. We could interview people like John Kay, um, Roy Greenwood, who played for City, and uh, people like that came along. And you know, they all came along for the last game, and uh, we did a lot of background stuff with fans and so on. That was quite... That was quite an enjoyable day, even though we got beat, and quite an emotional day as well. You could even with someone you could see what it meant to someone like uh, Peter Taylor, who had only just recently taken over as manager. He got caught up in the emotion of it all. Um, so that was um, that was quite something. You mentioned Forest Edge, just because I remember was it Phil? Yeah, Phil Wilson. Edge? Yeah. How long did he carry on working with City? Well, Phil um, Phil moved away from the area. He. Uh, he had a video business. He did weddings. That was, a, was probably one of his big things. But he also produced DVDs um, using old Pathé footage. from. So he'd, he'd do like old Hull or old old Sheffield or Sheffield at the war. And he would put footage together, old black and white footage of that from the 1920s onwards. And he had a, quite a big sideline in that. So that's where Forest Edge probably became better known for doing that kind of thing. And he got into doing Hull City. Um, the, the previous guy had retired. And unfortunately, the, the biggest, the worst thing about it was the previous guy had retired and had taken all the tapes and stuff with him. And I think they've been lost because there's all this footage from the 80s and 70s when City, start, City started to record their home games under Ken Houghton, which would be late 1970s. And the manager would get a tape. Whether Ken's got any of these, he probably, he probably binned them a long time ago. But the cl club didn't actually keep them because the, the guy who did the filming kept them. And I know it was a big frustration to Rob Smith at the time, who was running on the commercial side as well, that they didn't have an archive of footage to fall back on like some clubs had. And uh, getting footage from the 70s of Wagstaff and Chilton and then beyond that was quite difficult. You had to go to ITV in Leeds um, and try and get into the archives and try and find it. Sometimes they would charge for it. It wasn't always made freely available. Um, but there was a lot of footage that was used on Calendar Sport or on the Friday preview shows they used to do in those days when City were, were doing well under Colin Appleton and they featured a lot more on local news. But you know, finding that footage now would be quite difficult. Um, but sadly, had the club kept those videos there would be an absolute mine all those goals that Les Moutry and Billy Whitehurst scored you can imagine would have been captured on film but unfortunately as far as we know they've all been lost uh, it's only what people have recorded at home themselves that's when you see Tiger Chew picking it up on Twitter he does a fantastic job but he gets it from you know private people who've recorded on the old VHS at home it's a real shame they lost all that unfortunately yeah I've been doing a lot of research on Tiger Chew trying to pinch different things but yeah, it's a yeah, great little He's resource. a great guy as well. Um, but he's got a fantastic wealth of information there, hasn't he? And he's got some obscure, obscure stuff. Um, but yeah, he basically comes when somebody has been at home on a Friday or Saturday and has had the VHS ready to record that 20-second clip of City winning one mil away at Exeter under Colin Hatton <laughs> yeah. or something. And the goal was captured by the TV cameras in that region. And so it's come up here. Um, but yeah, most more than likely, City would have been given a copy of that tape to bring back should they have wanted to look at it. But where did where, where did it go? Probably the manager didn't keep it and unfortunately would be lost. It's a shame. Yeah, I remember once, I think it was the year one or two season, I tried to like make 
my own season review video by recording every goals on Sunday clip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I only got, that. only got a few games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did that in the eighties. Um, but I used to intersperse it with pot videos that I liked at the time. So you'd have the match of the day game with Holland Preston when Steve Massey was playing. And Steve Massey's great on Twitter. You can chat to him about the whole City days at any time. But then he would that would go off and he would come on with something like U2 or somebody from Top of the Pops. And then, yeah, a goal from City away at Swansea. And that's obviously where <laughs> Tiger Chiefs picked it up from people who've just kept these tapes and then have sent them into him and he's edited them down. So there is yeah. a wealth of uh, there's a wealth of stuff on there, isn't there? I think it's obscure things he's picked up. That's amazing, um, yeah. But there must at some point there must have been a market for someone to go into the Yorkshire TV archives and actually put it all together. You'd have thought I've done for other clubs, but but not for Hull City, unfortunately. I remember one guy on there. I think he must have been on Tiger Travel. He always used to bring his VHS of City goals with him that he'd recorded. All right. And uh, often used to watch them on the way to away games. It was quite good. But yeah, just going back to your routine at Boothry Park as a commentator then for that season, how easy was it for you to get into that role? Was it something you'd kind of been involved in um, before or anything? I guess I'd always, I'd always sort of talk to myself watching football on TV like other people do. Um, I don't know, it's something I fell into, I thought, you know, fairly naturally. Um, it was a case of... As I say, we'd be up in that little gantry. So we'd be there with one camera. Occasionally, if the budget stretched with City, we'd have somebody with a camera behind the goal. But these were times when Adam Pearson had just, you know, not long taken over. So the budgets were starting to come together and they were starting to do a bit more. But generally, it was the one camera shoot. And you'd have the guy from Yorkshire TV or lady for the other side, you know, stood next to you. They would bring a camera and they would always record it as well for goals on Sunday. Um... And the, the, the tape would be done for the mascot. So whoever the mascot was, and it only tend to be one in those days, a boy or a girl, it wouldn't be, now I think you get five or six coming out with a team. It was just one then. So they got the video to take home with them to keep for posterity. So there will be hundreds of hundreds of mascots in the Hull and East Riding area. We've got a video cassette of the match that they were mascot for, <laughs> whoever it was against. So again, there might be some coverage there that, uh, that Tiger Tube could get hold of. And so I used to roll up probably half an hour before kickoff because I wasn't much, we didn't do anything pre-match in those days. It was all quite low key. And I would do my preparation and my prep would generally be on the opposition because I would know that my home team, I would have my stats, the city games played, yellow cards, goals, etc. That was easy, easy to keep on top of. But when it was someone like Leighton Orient coming, you'd have to look at their team, the last game they played, who'd played, if anybody was injured, luckily, because the internet makes that quite straightforward. And there was things like soccer base at the time that you could use for statistics. And the same with the referee. You could look and see how many cards he'd shown that season, if he'd refed City previously and that kind of thing. Um, and then I could then I could sort of talk away. And it was just basically filling the gaps when nothing was happening on the pitch. If there's an injury, rather than having the old dead air, you were encouraged to sort of come out with something just to keep it, because the video still click, click, click in a way. Probably people hitting fast forward at home. But, um, <laughs> but even so, you sort of fill the, the time and the space with some sort of trivia. And then after the game, uh, we didn't do post-match interviews in the Jan Mulby era. Um, again, I think it was because there wasn't there wasn't that kind of content going on City's website so much, or, uh, and they didn't have the magazine in those days. When we switched to the KCOM, it, the, the dynamic changed dramatically. It became much more professional because the facilities were a lot better. 
Um, and then eventually when you moved into the Premier League, I actually had a monitor to use as well. So I could watch the action replays and that kind of thing. Whereas before I got one look at it like everybody else. <laughs> You're trying to give a, an opinion on what you think has happened from your quite quite a good vantage spot, but it's a one, it's a one, you know, one look at the incident and you hope you can call it right. Um but I think in the, the season reviews then again were fairly low key. I can't imagine we sold that many uh, until the great great escape season i think they sold quite a few because it was quite a big a big uh, video that they did for that that sold quite well but other seasons were you know were fairly mixed in terms of sales until the team suddenly started going up and then it, it went through the roof so would your first game have been against south end the 2-2 one no uh my first game i think was was orient um oh, south end, i remember the game um, they for some reason I don't quite know why they, they didn't advertise for the role straight away at the start. Uh, right, okay. So if anyone's got the South End tape, it's either got no no commentary on it at all, or it'll have some somebody some randomer doing it. Um, uh, okay, I just remember was, it being very eventful that game. That's all. Yeah, so I seem to remember it being. Yeah, no, I think it was Leighton Orient the first game I did, but it was also quite because we would get the tape sent from the opposition. So when City came back. Um, from say somewhere like Macclesfield if anybody thought that I was a partisan biased commentator then you hadn't heard that Macclesfield's guy was absolutely celebrating every goal and shortening the players names to what the fans called them and you would get these tapes sent and you would be editing them down for the end of season review <laughs> some of the commentaries were really partisan and that you could tell it was clearly for the home audience and these guys were really were fans and they didn't care who knew about it uh, and the whole score, it was, you know, you could tell the desolation in the voice. Oh. And they're looking for reasons why it shouldn't stand. You know, it looked, off, looked offside to me there, but uh, the referees allowed it to stand. And you get comments like that. And so the, and the standard from clubs really did vary dramatically as to what sort of equipment they'd used and where they were positioned. You could imagine what Colchester would be like compared to someone like, I don't know, uh, Plymouth or Sunderland had a bit more money. You'd get a much better quality tape coming across. Uh, did you have any direction in terms of how partisan it could be or how neutral you should be? No, not really. Um, it was clearly it was from a home perspective. So from Forest Edge's point of view, they were always hoping they would sell a few match day videos if the team won and um, that they could produce them on order if you wanted. So <clears throat> it was very much aimed at a home audience. But the, the, the caveat was, you know, to remember that the referee will get a copy of this tape. So too will the Football League. And so too will the opposition manager. So you can't go too far in terms of being <laughs> critical. You can you could say that looked a harsh decision or that, you know, on reflection, you could you could use phrases like that, but you had to be careful of not going overboard and uh, really slating anybody from the opposition or because they could obviously they could complain because it's a product that's going out into the into the wide world, if you like. Although, as I say, it wasn't shared so much on social media in those days or the internet, it was a more much more low-key operation. So there was that kind of direction. Um, you weren't encouraged not to be excited. You could be as excited as you like, providing you didn't distort, distort the microphone. If you got too excited or too loud, it would vibrate. <laughs> I got told off for that a few times to begin with. You had to tone it back. And um, then you would find that fans would pick up on phrases that you used. So when I went to Stuart Elliott was having his glorious run, I would say that's another goal from the Irishman. When I must have used that, terminology a few times because I got some stick for it and I got the most 
stick I've ever had or the most uh, celebration I've ever had was when I said that Elliot had let like a salmon to score against Swansea at uh, the new ground. And um, there quite a few people have quoted that let, by a, let, let like a salmon quote at me quite a number and still do. Um, so you, you do find that um, you repeat yourself in terms of sometimes how you describe things, I guess it's hard not to. Plus you are caught up in the emotion as well. If the team scores a vital goal, you do tend to sort of say, oh, that's a fantastic goal by Graham Alexander, not Graham um, Laurie Dudford, for instance, or um, one of the players of that time. You you know, you get quite excited, I suppose. Mm. Um, but no, it's very much a learn on the job. Again, if you listen to the stuff from before my time, the guy who was doing it before, Danny Pratt, his commentary style is... It's quite different. He's quite quiet. He does get excited when they score, but oh, he's, his level only goes up marginally. His pitch goes up a little bit, <laughs> but not a huge amount. <laughs> Maybe there wasn't many good things happening at the time. Um, Danny Pratt was was Danny was a fan, so clearly he would get excited and everything, and uh, so I did as well. Mm. But um, it was fun you know, for me. It was fantastic times commentating on my favourite team that I'd supported for all those years. Um, and so, Boothbury Park had a lot of character about it. And uh, it was just a shame at that time that we hadn't sort of moved into the era where we would do stuff before or after the game. It was very much a, a video of the match. And it was there designed, as I say, for the mascot to take away, but also for the manager to look back if they wanted to appeal against a decision or something, or they wanted to bring something up, they could send the videotape in as evidence to be looked at for whatever reason. Um, and they would obviously use it for analytical purposes if they wanted to give the players a, a dressing down or uh, some praise or whatever they could, you know, they used it for that purpose. But once the budgets increased, we'd have two or three cameras working on a game, depending on what the manager wanted. It was a different perspective. The manager would want someone to follow a uh, forward or, for, or follow a player to see what they're doing. They could bring that into it. And the editing process became a lot more complex and it became a much more slicker, operation which credit to Phil at Forest Edge he really did move with the times you know from going with a one camera shot for VHS then to go into traveling to away games we went to to Norwich on a Tuesday night to Carrow Road and, and did all the sort of stuff there we had two cameras working on that game and the, the operation changed you know quite dramatically um, as the club had more money under Adam Pearson he, he of course was a bit more of a visionary and Peter Taylor the same and so it, it developed you know quite hugely yeah, and I mean, as you say, obviously, it gets slicker when we move stadiums. But yeah. is there anything you miss as a fan? Or Yeah, I do miss you. I do envy uh, James Fletcher doing the commentaries now for I Follow um, on a Saturday, working with the likes of Justin Whittle and uh, and Brian Hughes. And luckily, through the official supporters club, I've got to, to meet Justin on Zoom a number of times. Um, so people like Justin Whittle, who... Played for City under the Great Escape era, of course, and that, and, and partly stayed up a little bit under Peter Taylor. You realise what a really down to earth, lovely guy Justin is, um, and he's really good on on co commentary when he's doing punditry for City at the moment. When they do use him, he's um, he's really good. Um, so you think back to him, and he's sort of stuck around the area and everything, and uh, he's working as a, as a postman now, as you, you probably know. Um, so City fans can I'm sure can see Justin on his on his beat and have a chat about the old days with him. He never tires of telling his Alan Shearer story. So if you ever see <laughs> Justin, ask him about that. Okay. Uh, the day he had Alan Shearer in his pocket when he was playing for Grimsby. Um, so yeah, it was a little bit. You know, if we, if we could have done a bit more in those days, it would have been nicer at Boothbury Park to have had a bit more before and after, just to go down on the pitch. It would have been nice to have met Jan Mulvey. I never met him, 
Um, you would meet some of the players occasionally because when you were going out, sometimes they'd be they'd be stripped, washed, and ready to go, and they would leave the same time. And if they had a good game, they'd want to know how they could get hold of a copy of the of the tape and things like that. But they were quite sort of detached from things until, as I say, we moved to the new stadium when it became a much uh, a much more upbeat operation with the City Mag. City Mag made a huge difference because we were doing features on ex-players in their homes and. You know, we'd travel across to see Andy Payton in Burnley and Alan Fettis in Macclesfield. Um, went and did Richard Jobson at the PFA where he worked in Manchester. And that was that was brilliant. You know, Richard Jobson's there. Martin Buchan comes in. Jimmy Armfield comes in. They're all working for the PFA. They'll all come in and say hello to Richard. And Oh, sorry, you're doing an interview. Um, <laughs> problem was we didn't have hardly any footage of Richard Jobson. You know, when he played for City at Boothbury Park, again, it's what Tiger Tube's got. And is what we could get, which was his, his odd goal, I think, showed on a, a game against Leeds and one or two other games he scored. But general footage of Jobbo from that era under Brian Horton, there's just not much of it around, unfortunately, which made it quite difficult. And we only had a little bit of Andy Payton because Forrest Edge took over as Andy Payton was coming towards the end of his City career. So they had all their footage of Andy Payton, what had gone before when he was playing under Stan Turner and, and, and under um, Eddie Gray, we didn't really have apart from what the TV had, had, uh, had shown, which was a shame. So you could go to Andy Payne's house, do a big interview with Andy, but we couldn't then really back it up with a lot of goals apart from this one block of a season that we had on, on footage at the club. It'd be good to see those interviews on YouTube at some point. And um, Brendan Smirthway's got every one, apparently. I think he's got every copy of, uh, of City Mag DVD. So Brendan's your man. Uh, right. and he might put them up. I think quite a few... I'm sure uh, Tiger Tube will have them because he'll have he'll have used them if he's needed to for missing footage and stuff. Um, but yeah, there's some good. Yeah, we did some good interviews. We went up to we went to Darlington's training ground to interview Dino when he was coach with Colin uh, yeah. Todd, and they were training at a school or a college or something. And we went to this. You know, you'd think professional football club at the time, but Darlington they didn't train at the ground, which I presume by then was maybe the Reynolds Arena and they'd maybe moved to there, but they'd maybe been kicked out of there by then. I can't quite remember, but Dino was coach, Colin Todd was manager. And it was the most amateur setup from a professional standards wise. The enthusiasm was there, um, but they were training on a part pitch. Like when you read a footballer's autobiography from the sixties and seventies, and you'll say, ah, oh, we used to train on the part pitch because we didn't have a training ground in like 1975 or something. This was Darlington in the early 2000s, and they still didn't have a training ground. Or they did, and it had been uh, requisitioned by the bailiffs or something. So they're training on a park pitch or whatever it was, and they're doing their best. And we went, we went up there to interview Dino about his whole city career and his subsequent career at Aberdeen and so on. And, of course, Dino is always really good uh, quality for an interview. He's, he's uh, always got lots of stories to tell. Most of them you can't put on tape, of course, because <laughs> uh, they're too rude. But um, you had a lot of a lot of stuff you could uh, you could get from Dino. And, you know, you stood there next to Colin Todd and you think, oh, he played for England, did Colin Todd? He played for Derby under Brian Clough. He was a, a really famous player. And here he is having to eke out a living <laughs> somewhere like that. And then you realised how professional Hull City had become in comparison where we've got our own magazine and we're actually going to do a feat. The, the golf in finance and class was, was quite incredible in those days. Yeah. They would, yeah. yeah they, these little teams would come to the to the KCOM and be really, but they'd lift the game a bit, wouldn't they, as well? They'd come and think, oh, listen, this is a nice stadium. It's a big crowd. There's 20,000 here. We're going to give the game of our lives.
but yeah, in terms of who you remember at the club at that point, uh, you mentioned a few people, but is there yeah. any people that kind of stick out from your memory of Boothry Park? Um, well, Simon Corkill, as I say, was he ran the sponsors lounge on a, on a match day. He was the commercial guy. And he was a really nice bloke. And if I ever see him, he just still go to City. I think he lived in Hornsey, probably still does. He remembers me and he'll stop and have a chat and we'll have a little reminisce about the old days. And um, there, there, was a, there was a season when I was working in the sponsors lounge when Needless Sweets were the sponsors and my dad worked for Needless Sweets. So that was quite handy. So he built up a relationship with Simon as well. And my dad's got these one-off Needless shirts that they produced that season that are quite rare and everything because... I think there was one or two that were produced that they're never actually worn by other team. They were produced more for commercial reasons. So that was quite, that was quite exciting. Um, so yeah, Simon, Simon ran it. Um, didn't see an awful lot of Terry Dolan particularly. He would sometimes come up and say hello to the sponsors, but I suppose you have to remember where we were at the time and maybe he wouldn't always get a warm reception. And <laughs> yeah. um, when he changed to Mark Haley, um, he certainly was, was more prominent he would come up and do his bits and of course when we had the lads on loan from Rangers we had Stephen Boyack and Brian McGinty there was the famous game when they all came down from Auchinleck and made an absolute racket and drank the, the ground dry and they were all in the sponsors lounge they all come in they were all singing about Mark Haley and um, but half of them stayed in and watched the, the results on the on the TV just just con- guarantee continued their drinking for the afternoon <laughs> they were lovely guys you know, they came down purely because they loved Mark Haley from his time at Rangers. And they so they came in at the end of the game, Boyak and McGinty came up, and your dad's there, and he's you know, he's doing his questions and everything. And um Stephen Boyak clearly was quite an intelligent lad and he could hold a conversation quite well. And his mum and dad were there, whereas McGinty didn't have so much to say. Uh, he was clearly clearly a bit quieter. And they had Boyak singing songs that he should never be singing, you know, sectarian songs going on. And because nobody knew anything about them, when I went home, my wife's Scottish. And I went home and said, they were singing this song about the sash. What was that all about? Oh, <laughs> that's the kind of song they sing at the old firm games and stuff. And it's generally frowned upon. I said, all oh, right, well, they were giving it loads after the match. <laughs> Boyak singing it away. And he's he sort of looking to himself, I think I shouldn't really be doing this, but they're all g me on to do it. And so give us a sash, Stephen, give us a sash. So he did, but it made for an incredible atmosphere that day. And although the stuff on the pitch wasn't particularly good, we had some characters playing under Mark Haley, Glyn Hodges, I remember, always injured. And so he was always up in the sponsors lounge or wandering around the back of the stadium. You just randomly see him. He's like, how's the injury? Oh, no, not so good. You know, he's missing again. And um, he would knock around with Haley and you could tell they were probably old pals from somewhere. There seemed to be some strange random players that came through the books that season that moved on and were never heard of again. Uh, the goalkeeper, Thompson, and people like that. Uh, yeah, I remember him, yeah. But there was a huge sort of Scottish influence for a while because his coach was, Billy Kirkwood was Scottish, yeah. wasn't he, I think? And so you would see him, his family would come to games from time to time. And of course, um, Mark Haightley's entourage would occasionally come as well. And never saw much of Tim Wilby when we were doing that role, which was quite, you know, considering he was sort of notionally running the club, didn't see a lot of him or David Lloyd for that matter. And then, of course, it, it all went um, it all went pear-shaped, didn't it? And we were locked out on that kind of thing. But, mm. um, yeah, they were strange times. But for all, <clears throat> all that was going on, we always got paid on time, even though we were doing a relatively low-key job, I suppose, for the club. Um, 
you know, the, the pay was generally always on time. We always got it by a check and everything. And um, uh, it was it was quite enjoyable times. I used to get there on match days at half past 12. So you would see the opposition arrive and come and look at it. Oh, they were always so impressed with the pitch because the groundsman did such a great, uh, John Cooper was, he did a great job with the pitch. I remember Barry Fry coming in with Birmingham. They were going really well. And he came out and he said, how much do you want for the pitch? <laughs> this pitch is effing brilliant. He said, how much do you want for it? And he's making a big play about it. He's looking at Karen Brady and he's, the rest of them that are suddenly down. Get this, get this guy to Birmingham, he's saying, in his <laughs> usual effervescent style that, that Barry Fry had. And uh, they came in. Such a huge difference, Birmingham, clearly on a big budget. And they came in with the, the fancy coach and the players all very smartly dressed and with a real kind of, you know, we're going to go places attitude at, at the time. Um, it was just a different world to whole city scrimping by with Martin Fish doing his whatever he could do with a very small budget to keep whole city going. And then, and now and again, you get teams coming in, swanning in like that. It was quite different. Yeah. Yeah. But interesting. <laughs> I remember there's a thing amongst the fans. That it was like, cause the pitch is so much better than a lot of other teams in our league. You know, the, there's a thing about, you know, teams turning up and really making the most of playing on that surface. Mm. <laughs> well, that was, yeah, that was the inference from Barry Fry. He looked at that and I think you could tell he thought, we can play football on this and we'll turn Hull. And they, I think they did turn us over probably. Um, but yeah, there was, yeah, I think a team that didn't play long ball that, that wanted to come and knock it around would probably think this is a great surface. And, you know, they could come to Hull in February and it wouldn't be clogged up like so many grounds like Spotland or wherever else you might go in that, in that league or Northampton or somewhere. You'd come to Hull and you'd know you'd have a decent pitch. So I guess they could prepare accordingly if they were a ball-playing team. It wouldn't have suited the likes of Cambridge coming with a long ball game, perhaps, where they wanted it holding up in the corners. Maybe it wouldn't suit them, but it, uh, it certainly yeah, it would certainly suit teams with uh, a bit of ball-playing ambition, definitely. Maybe yeah, not yeah. ourselves, unfortunately. So, <laughs> occasionally, we did have some ball players, but it was a needs-must situation, wasn't it? We didn't always have the place to take advantage of that surface at the time. No, true. Yeah. We had a few. We did. But... We had the likes of um, Richard Peacock could play a bit, couldn't he? And yeah, uh, people, yeah. people came and, and passed through who you thought. There was a, there's a lad called Chris Betney that came from Sheffield United on low. And he clearly had a little bit about him and he could, he could play a bit. And... Um, then you had other players who disappointed, like Craig Lawford, who allegedly could play, but never ever showed it in a Hull City shirt. And uh, I remember when Craig Lawford signed and Jeff Lee had supposedly called him the Bradford Baggio. <laughs> and he had this reputation that he was a ball player, but never evidence of that, no evidence of that whatsoever at Boothbury Park when he played. And my mate always reminds me, Steve, if he's watching, he'll say, do you remember that corner when Craig Lawford took it at the South Stand? And he said, and he put it straight in the stand. <laughs> the abuse he got. I've never seen Craig Lawford run as fast as he did that day. He hurtled back to the halfway line with this torrent of abuse following him because everybody <laughs> had gone forward for this late corner. Everything's on. It's like when it hits the first man now, but it was worse. He put it actually into the stand behind the goal. You know, oh, hey. But Craig, he could move fast when he had to. But the abuse followed him up the pitch. There seemed to be like one player a season that would get a lot of stick, on there? I remember like... Andy Chris Brown Lee used to get plastic. Chris Lee, yeah. I remember Chris Hargreaves when I first started again, he used to get a bit of stick. He did, yeah. Chris Hargreaves um, was one of the most hardworking players you could have in your team, but he didn't quite have maybe the skills to go with it. Uh, he's gone on to have a good career as a pundit on, uh, on non-league football. He did yeah, pop up seen it on, on BT Sport from time to time. And his books are really good reads. 
It's called Where's My Caravan, which is a bit of a pun on this one. <laughs> and uh, but it's a really good read. And he mentions his time at City, of course, because he played for Dolan, I think, at Bradford, hadn't he, previously? Did you okay, have right. Connection with him. And um, yeah, hard reads. Yeah, he, he would come in for some stick. I suppose we, we signed so many kind of average players on low money. Um, like the likes of you know Gregor Riach, didn't you, who could belt the ball really hard, but that was about it. And uh, a few others at the time, but yeah, every now and again they would unearth somebody with a bit of quality. But unfortunately, we would then would sell them on pretty fast just to to, to balance the books. Is there a high point? Is there a fan or someone that waits at the sit at the ground? <sighs> um, as I say, when I first started going as a, as a little lad, we sort of stuck around in Division Two without doing an awful lot for a number of years, and players passed through who you can remember, but they're not, not because they made a real impression on you. The first player that really made an impression on me after, after Waggy, because everyone loved Waggy. I love Waggy, but I didn't really probably know why I loved Waggy as a seven or eight-year-old, other than the fact he scored a lot of goals. But when I knew a bit more about football, when I was about 12 or 13, we signed Keith Edwards from Sheffield United. And Keith was the best striker I'd ever seen wearing a whole city shirt because he could put the ball in the back of it with one opportunity in a match. He wouldn't do much for the game, but Edwards would score. You give him a chance, nine times out of ten, he'd put it in the back of the net. And not only that, he lived around the corner from where I did in North Ferriby at the time. Some of you, my little mate, Ian Fraser, we would go around and knock on Keith's door. Hi, Keith, can we take your dog for a walk? And how, how are you? How's things going? And he was a really nice guy. And um, yeah, he said, yeah, he's a dog. You can take him for a walk if you like. <laughs> the thrill was you could knock on Keith's door and he would possibly answer. And he'd have a little chat about City. Uh, and so subsequently, you'd see Gareth Roberts come into the village from time to time because him and, and Keith were really were best buddies. And so that was he became a bit of a cult hero for me to Keith Edwards. And when he started knocking the goals in, I thought, well, this is it. We're going to take, we're going to have a lift off now. But um, we didn't really. We, we did have a few good times under Ken Houghton and Keith, but he didn't take off. So... The glory days for me watching, I suppose, some of the best players I've seen at Boothbury Park would be under Brian Horton's um, managership. And when he had the likes of Jobson and Gary Parker and Stan McEwen um, and Pete Skipper playing in the team and getting promotions. Um, initially under Colin Appleton and then Horton took us into what is now the championship and almost got us into what would have been the playoffs had they existed at the time. They were great days watching uh, Horton sign you know, some really top quality players. And I think if we'd had a bit more money at the club, if Robinson had had, he wasn't perhaps the wealthiest of man himself. He had some money. Had he had someone else he could call on, I think that next level, we would probably have achieved it under Horton. We, just, we were just that little bit short, but they were great memories um, of going to watch City at that time. I know it then fell flat afterwards, but um, we had some really good times. You'd go to away games and, you know, you'd, you'd go and have a good chance of, of winning at the likes of um, of Stoke or somewhere like that, and you really got the uh, the spirit going. But the worst game I ever saw, of course, would be away from Boothbury Park was the two 0 win at Burnley when uh, we needed to win by three. Right, I've heard that about a, that. Yeah, yeah, that was a one of the most uh, emotionally upsetting nights as a City fan because we should have won that game by three, um, but we only won it by two 0 And then Appleton resigned in the dressing room after the match, so we needed a new manager straight away. <laughs> We're going into college the next day, absolutely shell-shocked. They've been fighting all over the place outside the ground with three sets of fans in the ground. <laughs> um, the strain, they were, yeah, they were strange days, but that was certainly, that's probably the most memorable game for all the wrong reasons would be Burnley away. But um, yeah, there were some good games at Boothbury Park. I remember 
Les Mucci scoring, I think it was three or four against Hartlepool. At Boothbury Park, that was a great game. Mucci was a fantastic player. And anybody of my age, sort of 50 plus or even slightly younger, would probably think, you know, we were one of the best strikers never to play at a high level was, was Les Mutri. And then in terms of a goal at Boothbury Park, does anyone stand out as kind of the best? Yeah, there was one goal of um it was it was it was by my hero, little little Keithy Edwards. He was against Walsall on a Tuesday night. And Edwards hadn't that long signed for us. And we were going well. We were going well in the league. Him and Bannister were starting to have a bit of a partnership up front. So this was about 78, 79 season. And we played Walsall. And um, in the crowd was Jock Steen, the new Leeds United manager. And he was sat not far from me where me and my dad sat. And I got managed to get his autograph during the game or halftime, whatever it was. And Jock Steen had come to Boothbury Park to watch Walsall's star striker, Alan Buckley who then later managed Grimsby Town. But at the time, it was quite a big name. who scored a lot of goals. And Keith Edwards picked up the ball inside his own half against Walsall. And he ran from the halfway line and beat two Walsall defenders and stuck it in the back of the net at the south stand. And the ground absolutely erupted. And we thought, who have we signed here? This lad is not only quick, but he can go past players and put it in the back of the net. And I really did think... I think Mally Lord scored a great goal in that game as well. Mally was still knocking around and he scored on a half volley. And we beat Walsall, I think it was 4-0 or 4-1, something like that. Absolutely great night. And I really thought we were going to go places that season. But although we finished, I think, about ninth, it didn't quite take off. But that would probably be one of the best goals I've seen at Boothbury. Andy Payne scored a great one as well, where he went past three or four players and put it in the back of the net. Um, but that one from Edwards, it was just under the lights as well. It gave it a bit more of an atmosphere. And the fact he went from his own half, fantastic. Is that one you can watch on YouTube? No. Uh, right. <laughs> Sadly, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, City will have recorded it, but they obviously didn't keep it. Or if they did, I don't think even Edwards had got a copy of it. I wish he had, because he might have hung <laughs> on to it. Um, but no, unfortunately, if it was recorded, it would only be recorded by the club for analytical purposes. And Lord, you know, Lord knows what happened to it after that. It's probably a good finishing point there for really appreciate your time, mate. No, it's enjoyable to talk about the old days. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, looking at the future, um, the uh, although we've had some, we did have some good days under the Alam ownership. You know, we went to Wembley, as, you, as everybody knows, two promotions. And it could have been also different, couldn't it? You know, as a, I've seen it all probably. Um, as a whole city fan, you've seen the really, really bad times when we were potentially going out of the league. And then you see the really great times as a team comes back and you think, you know, Theo Lambs had adopted a slightly different attitude and had in, had brought Marco Silva in a bit earlier that season, whatever. You can't change history, but if you could, um, you know, they could have had a statue built outside the ground. Sadly, unfortunately, they'll be remembered for, for other reasons. But listen, hopefully it's a, it's a bright future that's coming. Yeah, yeah, spot on. New era, I think, is the new tag, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Exciting times anyway. Yeah, yeah.